The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. It is the servant on the mission. How much better to get wisdom than gold to get insight rather than silver? When I read that verse and started thinking about it a little, I started thinking about the gold rush. <laughs> I wasn't around then. <laughs> what is a gold rush? A rapid influx of fortune seekers to the site of newly discovered gold deposits. That sounds like that came out of a dictionary, doesn't it, huh? This man, John Sutter, was on his property in California in, 19, in 1848 that a man by the name of James Marshall was putting in a um, sawmill for him and noticed flakes of gold in the water. And that's what started it. By August, 4,000 prospectors had arrived. In 1849, 80,000 joined them. They're the original 49ers, okay? They weren't in San Francisco. They were in <laughs> Kelowna, California. In 1849, 80,000 80, joined. And then by 1850, a full quarter of a million of prospectors had come to California. They say they estimate about $2 billion worth of gold was mined. And it's not easy to mine gold, is it? It takes a lot of effort. But poor Mr. Sutter here, when all these prospectors came, they were thieves, he died a bankrupt. He didn't have anything. Imagine that. When Colorado, it all started at Pikes Peak, 1858. At the time, they say the estimated population of Colorado was about 160,000. But uh, the 59ers showed up <laughs> the next year, and the population increased by 100,000. If people are so intent to leave everything to search for gold, how much more the very Word of God? How much greater is the reward and blessing of knowing God. The book is a means to the end. God gave us this incredible book that we might know him. We are in a parenthesis of Mark 4. The theme for this month will be parables. We're going to be talking about parables all month long, and then we'll do a Christmas series, and then we'll come back to Mark in January. But there's this little parenthesis that appears in Matthew and Luke also. When he was alone, Jesus, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seen but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Wow. We're going to look at that. We're going to try today to answer three very basic questions. What are parables? When did Jesus teach in parables? And then the most important question we'll try to answer is why. Why did Jesus teach in 
Parables. What are parables? Well, the Greek word means to lay beside, which I find very interesting. So you have life, and then you have a story, and it's laid beside each other, and you can learn about life from the story, from the parable. And parables come from all kinds of different sources. There are parables about agriculture. Jesus lived in an agrarian society, so in this chapter we have a parable about a sower and seed and soil, and we also have one about a mustard seed growing. So some come like that. Some are from customs. And sometimes Jesus, you know, uh, introduces these parables with something like, you've heard it said, or something like that. And then there are incidents of daily life. And in the chapter, we have a parable about a lamp. And somebody says, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a bushel. No, and you don't let Satan blow it out either, right? And, and so that's a parable we'll be looking at. And those kind of come from everyday life. And then there are those parables that are kind of prompted by the occasion or the setting or the situation. Like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a parable. So, you got to look at the context. It's very, very important that we do that when we're studying parables. I like the way Dr. Wearsby defines it. Parables paint a picture that captures our imagination and forces us to think. He also says, parables are like a mirror. <laughs> you really start studying parables, you see yourself. And uh, may God help us to listen to what he says. The Illustrated Bible Dictionary on my shelf says parables are close to an allegory, but an allegory means to say something the same way in different ways, the same thing in different ways. And parables really aren't always allegories. In fact, before we're done this month, I'll probably try to share with you some of what the church fathers do with these parables. Oh, it's insanity. Every little piece means something, and on and on it goes. And you really have to be careful because a lot of that's happening today. People are explaining away the basic truth of Scripture with all these sophisticated allegories. Hey, well, it was a few generations ago, a guy, that a, of, a guy by the name of Rudolf Boltmann said the whole Bible's just myths. It's not myths. And when you study the parables, you're looking at the historic setting, you're looking at the grammar, you're looking at the language, and that's what you need to do. That's what we need to do. Beware of too much allegorizing. There are different schools of thought about parables. Some say it's uh, going through the, a thoroughgoing of eschatology and that parables primarily are something for the future. Others say, no, no, it's about the present realized eschatology and the meaning is found in the here and now. I think as we walk through Mark, we'll see both of that, uh, examples of that. Now, when did Jesus teach in parables? He taught them many things by parables, Mark 4, 2 says. We had read earlier in chapter 3 that he began to speak in parables. And primarily, parables in Mark especially are given when there's controversy, when there's criticism. And hasn't it been amazing to walk through Mark and see the growing opposition to Jesus Christ? I mean, chapter 2 <laughs> says to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Wait a minute. They're mumbling over the corner. He can hear them. They can't. They're not saying it, but he can hear, hear it. Only God can forgive sins. Of course, he is God, so that's why he can do it. Which is easier? 
<laughs> to say your sins are forgiven or say rise up and walk. So he tells him to rise up and walk and he does and the miracle's done. But that brought controversy. He's criticized and his disciples are criticized for plucking grains in the field. He heals on the Sabbath a man with a poor withered hand. And at the end of that story, in chapter 3 and verse 6, it said that the Pharisees and the Herodians, who would never be friends, plotted together to kill Jesus. That's only chapter 3 of Mark. And, and already there's this, this, this death sentence on him. His family says he's out of his mind. Remember when we read that? I was like, woo. And his brothers didn't believe until after the resurrection. And then... You remember that last week, or two weeks ago now, we were looking at the official delegation that came from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. And they said, he's doing these miracles by the power of Beelzebul, the devil. Jesus says, man, that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a sin that will never be forgiven if you're attributing the work of God to the work of the devil because a divided house can't stand. Satan is not working against himself. I do this by the power of God. Yes. So it's just as wrong to say that something that happens that Satan was doing and saying God was doing it as it would be to say something that God's doing, Satan's doing. I mean, it's, it's all blasphemy and it's something to be avoided, of course. Now, a few years ago, more than I want to imagine, I read a book by this man, John Lloyd Ogilvy. He doesn't look this well now. He's in heaven. But... Um, Anyway, he wrote a book called The Autobiography of God. Maybe he looks better, I don't know, but he was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He was a Presbyterian from California. And he said this about parables. The parables were all aspects of the autobiography of God being written through his son. Jesus came to reveal who God is and what we were meant to be. Each parable contains a basic element of the nature of God and how he works in our lives not loves. Spell check. Um, <laughs> the parables are God's own story about himself. So here's just a little short list of questions that we might want to keep in your mind as, as we're studying parables. What is the main point of each parable? Because it generally comes down to one, some more than one. What does that tell us about God? A good question to try to answer from a parable. If I believe that truth, what would I do? See, that's where the application comes. It's not enough to just study the language and the context and the history and all that. You need to say, how is this going to change my life? Because that's why God gave us his word, right? D.L. Moody said, you know, your Bible should be bound in shoe leather. That's what he meant. What was the context that motivated the parable? Very important question to answer. And how can I live the parable as a part of my citizenship in the kingdom of God? I think that's a great list of questions. So I introduce it to you just as we're going through the study of parables. Now let's get to the big question. Why did Jesus teach in parables? The apostles asked him a question. When he was alone, the private setting, the 12 and the others. So it's bigger than just the 12 apostles. There are other disciples that are part of the group. It's in a private setting. And they asked him about the parables. The way it is written, they asked and they kept asking. They were intent on understanding what these parables meant. They were eager to learn what they meant. 
And so the Savior has an answer. And he basically says, there are insiders and there are outsiders. Okay? And that's his answer. You remember when he was inside the house and his family showed up? And they were on the outside? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's kind of a little bit ironic, but he says, who's my family? The people that do the will of my father. They're, they're my family. They're on the inside. So he first addresses the insiders. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't do that. Did I? I didn't do that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't do that. All right. Well, whatever. The secret of the kingdom. We don't need that anyway. Mark didn't have it. The secret of the kingdom. He gives them the secret, the mystery. This is the only time Mark uses that term mystery. Now, Paul uses it a lot. But in the Gospels, there we go. Thank you. Thank you for resurrecting my PowerPoint. <laughs> so he gives them the secret to the kingdom of God. Now, secret's a really important word. It's a sacred secret. It's something that... People on the inside understand, people who believe, but people who don't believe don't really understand. And in that culture of that day, there were mystery cults. Have you ever heard that term? Mystery religions, where people who were on the inside were given information, but they weren't allowed to share it with others, okay? Now that's the great difference with Jesus. He's giving his secrets to his own, so they'll share it with others, right? And they change the world with it. Okay, so that's a big difference. So, for example, William Barclay in his commentary talks about an Egyptian mystery cult. It revolves around the story of Osiris, who was a wise and good king. Seth, his wicked brother, hated him, and along with 72 conspirators, persuaded him to come to a banquet. There, he induced him to enter a a cunningly made coffin which exactly fitted him. When he was inside, the lid was snapped down and the coffin was cast into the Nile River. Isis, his faithful wife, after a long and weary search, found the coffin and brought it home in mourning. When she was absent, the wicked Seth came again, stole away the body, cut it into 14 pieces, and scattered them throughout all of Egypt. Once again, Isis set out on her sad and weary search. In the end, she discovered all the pieces, and by her magical powers, all right, put them together and restored him to life again. And from that time, he became the immortal king of the living and the dead. Now, if you wanted to know this story and get the insight, you entered the mystery cult, and what happened? The candidate underwent a long preparation of purification, fasting, asceticism, and instruction as to the meaning of the story. Then the dramatic story with its grief and its sorrow and its resurrection and triumphal ending was played out in a passion play. Music and incense and lighting and a splendid liturgy were all used to enhance the emotional atmosphere. As the play was played out, the worshiper felt at one with the God, both in suffering and in triumph, and passed through death to immortality and union with the God. That's what they believe, but it's all a myth. The point is that at the, the initiated, the one who was initiated the whole thing would have 
been meaningless. If you, if you weren't initiated, you didn't understand any of this, but if you're part of, went through the initiation, it would all mean sex, make sense to you. So that's what was going on in the culture when Jesus uses the word sacred, secret of the kingdom. It is a sacred secret for those who are in the inside and believe. And that's the blessing. They get the revelation, and he's the one fulfilling it all. You know, yet, because I tell you the truth, you, you don't believe in me. I mean, Jesus had this come up many times. He's sharing the truth, he is the truth, but they didn't believe. And sometimes that even included the apostles. And we'll see that even in the book of Mark. But once they did believe, and the Holy Spirit descended, and Acts, and they went out and shared it with everybody. All over the world, and it changed the world. And thank God it changed us. Now the outsiders, you see, those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that, all right, they may be ever seen and never perceiving and ever hearing but never understand. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to turn there because I, I want to take the time to read Isaiah 6 with you and just make a couple brief comments because the context of what happened to Isaiah really mirrors what's happening in the life of our Savior. And at, at the beginning, God reveals himself to Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He's omnipresent. Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. What an amazing scene Isaiah saw. Isaiah was a priest, and this may have even happened right there in the temple. In Jerusalem. And he saw it. And God was revealing himself to him. And then, <laughs> if you and I were there, we'd have the same reaction. Woe to me! If a sinner sees the holy God, he'll likely die. He'll drop dead. Perhaps this is what Isaiah was fearing. I'm a I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But then God intervenes. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. You're not going to die. And then... In the next little phase, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, I don't know how you understand that, us, but I understand it to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't think he's talking about sending a message from the angels. I think he's talking about the Holy Trinity talking to one another. Who's going to go for us? And I said, Him I send me. Now that he's seen God, he's tasted he's seen the revelation of God who God is and now he's been cleansed and man he wants to go and tell others and that's the ministry of Isaiah and God said go and tell this people 
Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, that's the extended quote in Isaiah. Mark kind of shortened it a bit, but it's the same message. Okay, so we need to investigate that. But in the end, poor Isaiah goes, how long? Like, wouldn't you think that? Okay, your career is you're going to go and you're going to share with people about me and they're not going to listen. In fact, they're going to get worse. Or as my father-in-law would say, they're going to get worser. Right? They're hearing the good news. They're hearing the message. But they're not believing. And their hearts are being calloused. And judgment is coming. And I said, how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. They're sent into captivity. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the timberth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be in the stump in the land. The Savior will survive. We still will have a Savior from the people of Israel, even though they go through all this judgment. Hallelujah! And Isaiah, just keep doing it until you die. Wow. Now, Back to Mark. Let, let's think about this. You see, Jesus is facing similar rejection. He's facing the same kind of rejection that Isaiah did. And what did Jesus say at the end of the parables? He who has ears, let him hear. Listen. Pray that your ears will be open. Pray that you'll understand. Seek for the truth. Don't just listen and walk away. Hear it. But if you refuse to believe, it will bring judgment. Your heart will become harder. And that's that interplay between the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of us as human beings to respond. Isaiah 6 is quoted a couple times. It's quoted in John. In this case, it's not the parables, the teaching, it's the signs, the miracles he's doing. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's Isaiah 53, 1. For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so that they can neither see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, or turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So now we see from this text that when he saw the Lord high lifted up, he saw the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He saw Jesus. That was Jesus' glory that he was seeing, Isaiah. And Isaiah is saying, man, I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach about the Messiah, but they're not going to believe in the book of Acts, Luke includes the same quote to talk about the ministry of Paul. Some were convinced by what he said, Paul said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will 
be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. We live in a generation of people who are stopping their ears. We see it all the time, but we will not stop sowing the good seed. That's next week's parable. But it's so sad. It's alarming. Dr. Wiersbe was so right. He said, the listener must get deeply involved. It compels us to decide. The, the power is illustrated by the reaction of the listeners. And sadly, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. They're always taking polls. They're always worried about what the public opinion is. <laughs> Jesus... Parables are unique. They're amazing. And they are like a mirror. We can see ourselves in them. Judgment will come on all who reject the word of God. Sadly, God's word always accomplishes its purpose. And for some, because of their unbelief, it condemns them. But the invitation goes out. Believe, believe, believe. The value, the clause of consequence is the way some have said it. I don't know if you know this dear lady, Elizabeth Elliot. This dear woman's husband was martyred on the beaches in Ecuador and the Badanis who murdered her husband. She went into the tribe with her little girl to share the good news with them. Pretty strong character, right? That's what she said about fear. Fear arises when we imagine everything depends on us. <laughs> yep. Yep, I've been there. You've been there? I've been there. Here's Alistair Begg. Now, he looks a little older now. He's 70. Well, actually, Elizabeth Elliot looks much better because she's in heaven. But anyway... Fear is a cousin to unbelief. I, I was listening to his sermon just this week. He preached this in the Sunday night service at his church. Fear is the cousin to unbelief. Very interesting. So what's the remedy for fear? Faith. Right? John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. I find that to be one of the most difficult <laughs> commands to obey. My heart's troubled all the time. I got real heart trouble. I get anxious. I get nervous. I always think the worst is going to happen. Been there? Don't raise your hand because, you know, people are looking. You know, they're watching us. Anyway, what's the remedy? You believe in God, believe also in me. This could be two commands. Believe in God, believe also in me. Because Jesus is God, when you believe on him, it dispels your fears. Hallelujah. And this all comes from the word of God as he has revealed himself to us. That's why we have such respect and, and are so blessed. We've been intrigued by this introduction to parables. But this is what our statement of faith says about the Bible. 
There are less and less churches, denominations, and ministries that are holding to a statement like this. Even among those who claim they are evangelicals, they may sign the creed, but they do not teach the Word of God as though it is the Word of God. Peter says, listen, if you're going to preach, preach the oracles of God. If you think I get loud, if you think I am convinced this is the truth, good. I am. I believe it. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible was without error in the original writings. And in the New Testament, we have 95% agreement. Of all the manuscripts we have, they agree 95% of the time. So the 5% doesn't touch anything that really matters. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. This needs to be preached, it needs to be taught, but more importantly, it needs to be practiced. Do you understand? That's why they were understanding the parables, because they were eager to do the will of God. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And so I conclude with a quote from Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. That should be your daily prayer. Every time you open your Bible, every time you hear a sermon, every time you're meditating on Scripture, open my eyes, Lord. Open my heart, Lord. Change me by the power of your verbally inspired, inerrant word. Let that be your prayer. Somebody here may have never heard that before. Praise God. Believe the word of God. Trust it. Oh, the Bible's been so attacked. <laughs> and every time the archaeologists go out and dig up stuff, they find things that confirm the truth that's already in the word of God. People say for years, there's no King David. And then just recently, somebody dug up something and said, King David of Israel. Didn't surprise me. Would it surprise you? Because I believe the word of God open our eyes, Lord. Let's pray, dear Lord, open our eyes that we might see and believe the truth of your word as you have revealed yourself to us. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, Lord, thank you. By the miracle of illumination, we understand your word and we believe it. Let us practice it. Not just to sign a creed, but to live lives that are transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, why not? Do it today. Believe on the Lord Jesus, who died for you, was buried and rose again and has ascended into heaven. And from there, he is coming again to this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.